0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Back in 2016, we did a podcast about Desmond T. Doss, and that was the first conscientious objector to be awarded the Medal of Honor. And from time to time, when we share that episode on our social media, someone comments something along the lines of, what about Alvin York? So we're coming up on the centennial of the act of heroism that earned Alvin York the Medal of Honor that happened on October 8th, 1918. So it seemed like a good time to talk about him and to answer that frequently asked question from our social media. Also, Alvin York's name is pretty well known thanks to the 1941 film, Sergeant York, starring Gary Cooper. And the real life Alvin York was an advisor on the film, but it really takes a whole lot of liberties. And it also stops before the part of York's life that he thought of as a much greater achievement than the actions that earned him the Medal of Honor. So that is what we are going to talk about today. Alvin
0: Cullum York was born on his family's small farm near Pall Mall, Tennessee, in the Wolf River Valley on December 13th of 1887. His parents were William Uriah York and Mary Elizabeth York, and he was the third of 11 children. They all lived in a dog-trot cabin of the sort that we actually talked about in our recent episode on air conditioning.
1: The Yorks were mostly subsistence farmers, although William also earned some money as a blacksmith. As Alvin got a little older, he joined his father in that work, and Alvin also supplemented the family's food supply through his growing skill as a marksman, both from hunting and from winning turkey shoots. The Wolf River
0: Valley area was extremely isolated when Alvin York was growing up. There were no paved roads or railroads in Fentress County, where Pall Mall is located. The Wolf River itself also wasn't navigable by steamboat, and most of the families living there were also subsistence farmers, like the Yorks. And this meant that Alvin, his siblings, and their friends had very little formal education. Their labor was needed on the farm in order for the family to survive. York described himself as having a third-grade education, and that amounted to about three months of school per year spread across three years.
1: William York died in 1911 after being injured by a mule. 24-year-old Alvin was the oldest of the York children still living at home, and his older brothers had families of their own. So Alvin essentially became the head of the family. He was expected to run the farm and to look after his mother and to help raise his youngest siblings.
0: He had real trouble coping with all of these new responsibilities and with the grief over his father's death. He and his father had bonded while hunting together, and Alvin deeply respected his father. After William York died, Alvin and some of his friends became increasingly rowdy. They headed across the border into Kentucky to gamble and drink, and soon Alvin had several arrests on his record, mainly for intoxication or trouble that he got into while he was intoxicated.
1: One night, Alvin and his best friend Everett Delk got into a fight at a bar Circumstances aren't completely clear, but Delk was killed. York was the one who had to take his friend's body home. And at that point, he started seriously reconsidering his choices. The Yorks,
0: like virtually
1: all of their neighbors, were churchgoers, and Alvin had been
0: raised in a devout Christian household. But in the years after his father's death, Alvin was no longer actively attending. He returned to church in part because he had met a young woman that he was quite fond of. Her name was Gracie Williams. Gracie's father thought Alvin was too old for her, and on top of that, an unbeliever, and he would not allow them to court.
1: In the last week of 1914, York attended a revival held by an itinerant preacher, the Reverend Melvin Herbert Russell. Alvin went to this revival in part because he knew Gracie was going to be there, but on the last day of the revival, which was on New Year's Day 1915, something really shifted for him. On that particular day, he described the gospel, quote, as if lightning had struck my soul. When the preacher put out the invitation for people to come forward and to publicly repent of their sins, Alvin did.
0: This was a night and day change for the way that he was living. He gave up alcohol and he started trying to
1: live his life in a
0: Christian way, one that was rooted in honesty, decency, mercy, and kindness. Soon, Alvin and Gracie were seriously courting. In his words, quote, Miss Gracie said that she wouldn't let me come according until I'd quit my mean drinking, fighting, and card flipping. So you see, I was struck down by the power of love and the great God Almighty all together.
1: One of the York's neighbors was also a pastor, Rosier Pyle. Pyle became a mentor to York after his conversion. And then after another revival in the area, Pyle and York established a congregation of the Church of Christ in Christian Union, also called the 3CU. York became a singer and an elder in their newly established church. After the Selective Service Act was
0: passed in 1917, York was required to register for the draft. He did, but in the space that asked, do you claim exemption from draft, specify grounds, he wrote, yes, don't want to fight. He had come to believe that fighting and killing were sinful under any circumstances, and this belief contradicted his desire to serve his country. His ancestors had also fought for the Union during the Civil War, and part of him felt like he should follow in their footsteps. He was really troubled over all of these conflicting impulses about what was the right thing to do.
1: York had filled out his draft registration card in June of 1917, and that same month he got engaged to Gracie Williams— then on August 28th, he reported for his physical. He was found fit to serve, and he started formally applying for conscientious objector status. So this it's not something that you could just say, I'm a conscientious objector. There were rules that you had to document what you were talking about and why you had an objection to serving in a military capacity.
0: But his application was turned down. The board ruled that the Church of Christ and Christian Union was not a, quote, well-recognized religious sect, since at the time it existed in only three states. The board also noted that the 3CU, quote, has no special creed except the Bible, which its members more or less interpret for themselves. Some members of the church interpreted the Bible to mean that fighting in a war was sinful,
1: but others did not. York filed several applications for conscientious objector status, but once he reported for duty, he stopped doing this. At least one request was filed on his behalf in 1918, though, that was done without his knowledge or consent. And that's probably where some confusion comes from about the idea that somebody else applied for him. Sometimes you'll see it described that he never uh, filed um, an application on his own that's definitely not correct. There are multiple applications on record, but he did write about how he had never done it in terms of this one that was done after he was already surveying, that was done without his consent.
0: We are going to talk about York's time in the Army after we first pause for a little sponsor break. <laughs>
1: Once he got into the Army, in some ways, Alvin York seemed to really enjoy basic training, finding it easier than being at home. His family had been living in poverty for all of his life, and the food was in very short supply. But in the Army, he was getting three meals a day and a cot to himself that he didn't have to share, plus a new uniform that was provided for him. And it also helped that some of the things he was supposed to be learning were things he already really excelled at, particularly marksmanship.
0: But in another way, it was quite difficult. York had never been more than 50 miles away from Pall Mall. Nearly everyone living in Fentress County was white and had been living there for generations. But many of the men in training with him were immigrants to the United States who had been living in northern cities, and they couldn't
1: understand one another, and they had very little in common. His religious devotion also really set him apart from most of the other men. And he had to keep his still-troubled conscience to himself. Men who objected to the war were seen as cowards and idlers, and often they faced extensive harassment from their fellow soldiers. So even though he was having three square meals a day and a bed to sleep in that he didn't have to share with anybody and that sort of thing, socially he was very isolated.
0: Once he was finished with basic training, York continued to have doubts about what he was doing. And these doubts escalated while he was stationed in Camp Gordon, Georgia, with Company G, 328th Infantry Regiment, 82nd U.S. Army Infantry Division. Some of their exercises at this point weren't just about marksmanship, they were about killing with both firearms and bayonets. And that whole idea continued to really
1: trouble him. He talked to two officers about his doubts. They were Captain ECB Danforth Jr. and George Edward Buxton. And these three men had lengthy discussions about what was weighing on York's conscience. Danforth and Buxton were both really familiar with the Bible, and they and York thoughtfully talked through what the scriptures had to say about things like war and fighting and duty. When these conversations didn't totally resolve York's doubts, he was given leave to go back home and consider what he should do.
0: So he we went back to Tennessee. And while he was there, he ultimately decided that it was God's will for him to fight in the army. He described it as having received assurance from God himself that this was the right thing to do. And that assurance came after about 36 hours of fasting and prayer.
1: And that's why Alvin York isn't considered to be the first conscientious objector to earn the Medal of Honor. He did earn the Medal of Honor, which we're going to talk about. But he ultimately reconciled his questions of conscience, and he served in a combat role, rather than serving in a non-combat role as a conscientious objector, or going to prison rather than serving.
0: Shortly after York returned to duty on March 31st, 1918, his division was sent overseas. They spent several months rotating in and out of trenches along the front. And then the Meuse-Argonne Offensive began on September 26, 1918, and that continued until the armistice was signed at the end of the war. It was part of the 100 Days Offensive, which we
1: talked about in our recent episode on the Battle of Amiens. York earned his Medal of Honor during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. By that point, he had been promoted to corporal, the 82nd Infantry Division was deployed to capture the Decovia Railroad, which was being used to resupply German troops. But on the way there, they encountered heavy machine gun fire that kept them from reaching their target. On October 8th, York's
0: platoon was ordered to cross a valley to capture the machine gun nest that was preventing their advance. This meant that they had to cross a stretch of open territory to get to their target. An artillery barrage that was supposed to protect them never arrived, and they faced huge casualties as they tried to cross the valley. Only 17 men were still able to fight once they found an unused trench to take cover in. This was
1: not an actual combat trench. It was like it had built from some other agricultural purpose, maybe. So it was a temporary shelter, uh, not something that was actually meant for military use. And From there, they carefully made their way back behind the German line, where they surprised two German soldiers wearing Red Cross armbands. When these soldiers disappeared into the brush, the American force pursued them. But on the other side of the brush was Lieutenant Paul Jürgen Vollmer's headquarters, which was full of German soldiers eating breakfast. These soldiers had hiked through the night, they were exhausted and they were hungry, And they seemed to believe that these American soldiers who had just come in on them were an advanced unit connected to a much larger force. A lot of the German soldiers immediately surrendered. At this point, the German machine gun crew on a hill above the headquarters
0: noticed what was happening and they yelled in German for the soldiers to drop. And then they opened fire on the American force. Six Americans were killed, including Corporal Murray Savage, who had become close friends with York, The wounded included their commanding officer, Sergeant Bernard Early, and another officer, Corporal William Cutting. Of the 17 men who had taken cover in the trench, only eight men, including
1: York, were still able to fight. York took command, and he and the other seven men found cover on the side of the hill and started returning fire against these machine gunners. Because of the way that York and the surviving men were tucked in at the bottom of the hill, the German force up at the top of the hill had to stand up and lean forward to aim down at them. York and the other Americans shot at them when they did this, with York calling out for them to surrender so that they wouldn't be killed.
0: Then, a German lieutenant and about six soldiers tried to charge down the hill with bayonets, trying to take down whoever was killing the machine gunners. That was mostly York. And York shot each of them with his pistol, working from the back of the charge to the front, using the same technique he had used when hunting turkeys or other birds at home. And when hunting, the idea was to take down the birds at the back without alarming the ones at the front and causing them to scatter. And when York was being charged, he was starting with the men at the back so that they couldn't take cover behind the bodies of the men in front. One of the men also threw a small grenade at York, but that missed. At this
1: point, Vollmer, who had lived in the United States for a while, called out to York in English, English? York answered, no, not English. Vollmer said, what? And York answered, American. Vollmer replied, good Lord, if you won't shoot anymore, I will make them give up. And then he ordered the rest of the German force to surrender.
0: Four German officers and 128 men were captured. The other Americans who were there credited York with doing the vast majority of the work they escorted the German prisoners back to a command post. And that command post had no facilities to hold them, so they marched about 10 miles to the brigade headquarters. By the time they arrived there, they had picked up other German POWs as well, for a total of about 200.
1: After this, with those machine guns out of commission, the Allies were able to capture the Dekka Railroad as planned. From there, York and the rest of his unit saw combat repeatedly between that October 8th engagement and the end of the war. On November 1st of 1918, York was promoted to sergeant, and then the war ended on November 11th.
0: Sergeant Alvin York was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the Croix de Guerre with Palms, and the Medal of Honor for his actions on October 8th of 1918. The Medal of Honor was awarded on April 18th of 1919, and the citation reads, quote, After his platoon had suffered heavy casualties and three other non-commissioned officers had become casualties, Corporal York assumed command. Fearlessly leading seven men, he charged with great daring a machine gun nest, which was pouring deadly and incessant fire upon his platoon. In this heroic feat, the machine gun nest was taken, together with four officers and 128 men and several guns.
1: Later on, Sergeant Early and Corporal Cutting, who had enlisted under a false name and was really Otis B. Merrithew, were each awarded the Distinguished Service Cross as well. There are a couple of misconceptions about York's
0: heroism on October 8th, and one is that he captured 35 machine guns. This is repeated in a lot of places, including on the plaque of a statue of him. And that 35 number is a huge exaggeration. It's something neither York nor his military record
1: ever claimed. Yeah, sometimes plaques on statues and historical marker signs are just not right. For for a variety of reasons. <laughs> for a number of reasons. So yeah, this this is an exaggeration. That's not something he ever said he did. And the other misconception is that he did it single-handedly. This is something that also appears in a lot of places. It seems to have originated with a Saturday Evening Post article by George Petullo that was published on April 26, 1919, and then that was picked up by other news sources. Petullo had interviewed several survivors of the day, including Sergeant Early, and in his words in this article, quote, there were seven other Americans present at the fight, but it was York's battle and only York's.
0: But that is simply not true, The seven other men were Private Percy Beardsley, Private Joe Konotsky, Private Theodore Sock, Private Thomas C. Johnson, Private Michael Sachina, Private Patrick Donahue, and Private George Wills. And all of those men were active participants in the fight against the machine gunners and the capture of the German prisoners. The fact that York got all of the credit led to ongoing animosity from some of the other men, including, in the case of Otis B. Merrithew, a massive campaign making the claim that he and not York had been the one to take command and save the day.
1: So the fact that these other men were left completely out of the discussion was a huge disservice to them, and it gave York a lot of notoriety that he never asked for and didn't particularly want. And we will talk about York's life after the war and how that played into it after another quick sponsor break. In February of 1919, Alvin York went back to the site of the events of October 8th of the prior year as part of an inquiry to determine whether he should be awarded the Medal of Honor. He was asked, York, how did you do it? And he answered, Sir, it is not manpower. A higher power than manpower guided and watched over me and told me what to do. And that idea underpinned his entire life from this point. He didn't want to really take credit for what had happened or focus on the war.
0: But by the time York returned to the U.S. on May 22, 1919, he was famous, largely thanks to that Saturday Evening Post article. He was welcomed as a national hero and greeted with ticker tape parades, and the press was eager to report on what he had done. He had rooms at the Waldorf Astoria thanks to the Tennessee Society of New York, and he saw plays on Broadway. Almost immediately, film producers began contacting him about making a movie and trying to convince him to sell the rights to his story. He got offers for book deals and vaudeville tours as well.
1: But he really was not comfortable with this. Although he had reconciled himself to his military service, he still didn't think what he had done should be glorified. He thought he had done what needed to be done and that he should not become famous for it. And then once he realized that he was famous for it, whether he wanted to be or not, he didn't think he should exploit that fame for his own personal gain. Even his letters home during this time don't talk about things like earning the Medal of Honor. They really focus on whatever was happening in Pall
0: York was discharged from the Army on May 29th, 1919, and he married Gracie Williams on June 7th. Even the wedding was affected by his newfound fame. Tennessee Governor Albert H. Roberts traveled to Pall Mall to act as efficient alongside Pastor Pyle. There were about 5,000 onlookers at this wedding as well, and the couple decided to get married outside on a rock ledge in the mountains so that everybody who wanted to could
1: see it. York got a lot of offers of money and endorsement deals, and he turned them all down the only gift that he accepted was a farm, which the Rotary Club had told him would be his free and clear. But they didn't actually get the donations they were hoping for to be able to do that, and York wound up on the hook for roughly $25,000, about $10,000 for the land itself, which the Rotary Club had bought but still owed all that money on, and about $15,000 to build a house on it.
0: This was a serious financial problem. That was more money than York would be able to earn from the farm in a lifetime. And as word spread about it, an effort started in Congress to have York designated a retired army officer, which would entitle him to pay and benefits. That effort dragged on for decades, but the debt on the farm was actually paid off in 1921 after additional fundraising.
1: Almost immediately after his return home, Alvin York focused extensively on one goal, providing educational opportunities for the people of Pall Mall and Fentress County. As we said earlier, this part of the state was extremely impoverished. It was very isolated. Most of the rural counties in this part of Tennessee were so poor that there just weren't enough tax revenues to fund a school. Fentress County had no high school at all when York got out of the service. But
0: York's time in the Army had significantly broadened his horizons and his view of the world, and he realized that his lack of education was a huge detriment. He wanted the children living in Fentress County to have, quote, liberating influences and educational advantages which were denied me. In his words, I was called to lead my people toward a sensible modern education.
1: Soon after returning home, he founded the nonprofit Alvin C. York Foundation, York personally raised about $15,000, and the state of Tennessee and Fentress County each contributed about $50,000 toward starting a school. Along with other fundraising efforts, the result was a vocational school called the Alvin C. York Agricultural Institute. They broke ground on the school on May 8, 1926, and they started holding classes in 1929. The school was built in the county seat of Jamestown in Fentress County, not far away from Pall Mall.
0: Running concurrently with the creation of the school was another obstacle. There were no paved roads in Fentress County, which would make it difficult to impossible for some students to even reach the school. So York went to the state capital of Nashville to convince the highway commissioner to build a highway. And the result of that effort was a 32-mile, that's about 52 kilometers, highway across the county that's now known as the Alvin C. York Memorial Highway.
1: Then, again, using his own money and money he personally raised, York bought school buses and hired bus drivers to drive them.
0: And throughout all of this, York was actually teaching himself. He was teaching himself to be an educator, an administrator, and a public speaker. Arthur S. Bushing, who was from New York but had married a woman from Fentress County, acted as York's tutor and speechwriter and traveled with him as he
1: tried to raise funds. York was also encountering heavy resistance to what he was doing. This was happening basically at the same time as the Scopes trial that we've talked about before, and there was an ongoing standardization of education that was causing a lot of concern and resistance in a lot of places, and then everyone specifically in Fentress County was making a subsistence level of of living through farming. This was only possible if their children worked on the farm for much of the year instead of attending school. So in York's own words, quote, I begun to work almost as soon as I could walk. And that was really just the reality of life in Fentress County. Children had to work from the minute they were able to or else their families simply could not survive.
0: York also encountered heavy resistance from the county's elite residents for having no formal education and no training and no experience with any of this. They thought the idea that an uneducated man from rural Tennessee could figure out how to plan, open, and run a school was completely ridiculous, no matter what heroism he had evidenced in the war. This resistance even involved legal action, with an attorney claiming that York was trespassing and the County Board of Education serving
1: the school an eviction notice. But York persevered, and twice during the Great Depression, when funding ran short on the Institute, he mortgaged his home to personally pay the salaries of the bus drivers and the teachers at the school. He ran the school
0: himself until 1937, at which point all the infighting and hostility from the Fentress County elite made it basically impossible for him to continue. York knew that turning the school over to the county would be a disaster. The county had been trying to stop him from doing it for a decade. So he arranged for the state to take it over, and the Tennessee legislature became responsible for its funding and operation.
1: Because York focused on this institute with such single-minded determination, doing so much of it himself and educating himself in order to get it done, and did it in the face of so much opposition, both he and some of his descendants have described it as a bigger accomplishment than the one that earned him the Medal of Honor. Even though he wasn't
0: running the school anymore after 1937, York continued to be involved and continued to raise funds for education. Then, as World War II began in Europe, York finally agreed to sell the rights to his story to a film producer. He made the deal with Jesse Lasky, who had started talking to him about it way back in 1919, and Harry Warner, president of Warner Brothers. They finalized that deal in 1940.
1: York had really wanted this film to be about his quest to open a school. But as the war in Europe got worse, the producers persuaded him to instead focus on his wartime service and to make a really patriotic film that would serve as a message that the United States should intervene and as an inspiration to young men to serve.
0: This might seem like a very strange focus for a film about a man who had felt so conflicted about his own service. Aside from his service in World War I and the years of World War II, York was a pacifist for all of his post-conversion life. And in the years after World War I was over, he sometimes wondered whether it had even been worth it.
1: But he absolutely saw the need for intervention in World War II. He was advocating for the United States to intervene against Japan in 1936 in the face of just increasing Japanese aggression against China, And in 1938, he was advocating for the United States to, quote, knock Hitler off the block. This was in total opposition to a widespread strain of America First isolationism in the years leading up to Pearl Harbor being bombed. It was a deeply unpopular stand for York to take, and he took it knowing that it could harm his efforts to raise money for the Institute.
0: The movie Sergeant York debuted in 1941 with Gary Cooper in the starring role. That was something that York himself had requested. And this film was a huge financial success for Warner Brothers. It was the biggest box office hit of 1941. It also earned two Academy Awards, one for Cooper's work as an actor and another for film editing. And it was nominated in nine other categories, including Best Picture and Best Director. York earned about $150,000 on the film, and he put almost all of that money right into the York Institute.
1: When Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii on December 7th, 1941, Sergeant York was still in theaters. It had been planned from the outset as a patriotic movie, but it seemed even more so after the attack and after the United States' entry into the war. At the same time, the movie was criticized as basically being wartime propaganda, and it was played on American military bases and distributed to all the allies in the war. York
0: volunteered to return to service during World War II, but his age and some health issues kept him from doing so. Instead, he was made a major in the Army Signal Corps. He toured the United States on behalf of the War Department, giving patriotic speeches and encouraging military service and the purchasing of war bonds. He also served on the Selective Service Board in Fentress County and became a spokesperson for the Fight for Freedom Committee, an organization that was formed as a counterargument to Charles Lindbergh and the America First Committee.
1: York had a series of strokes toward the end of his life, including a serious one in 1954, after which he couldn't leave his bed. About a year later, he wound up in a six-year battle with the IRS over unpaid taxes. Throughout his life, York had been putting virtually all the money he got into the Institute, and he hadn't withheld money to pay taxes on it. At one point, the IRS reported that he owed $172,000, they eventually agreed on a $25,000 payment.
0: York died of a cerebral hemorrhage on September 2nd, 1964, at the age of 76. He was survived by his wife, Gracie, and seven of their ten children.
1: A statue of Alvin York was unveiled at the Tennessee Capitol on December 13th of 1968. It was sculpted by Felix de who also created the Marine Corps War Memorial, also known as the Iwo Jima Memorial. Alvin C. York State Park preserves the York home where he and his family lived after World War I. And the World War I commemorative silver dollar features a likeness of Alvin York. He's also been commemorated on a postage stamp.
0: The York Agricultural Institute still exists today as a public high school. And in 1986, it was selected as Tennessee's Center for Rural Education. At one point, it was scheduled for demolition, but ultimately, it was restored as a historic site. And that is Alvin York.
1: Do you also have a bit of listener mail for us? I sure do. This is from Rachel, and Rachel says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I'm a huge fan of Stuff You Missed. I listen to it on my train commute every day. I just recently listened to the Unearthed in July podcasts. I know I'm a wee bit behind, and I have to say, that was easily my favorite unearthed podcast yet, particularly the section on games. I am an American PhD candidate. My specialty is medieval and renaissance games and recreation. My master's thesis was on medieval chess, and my doctoral thesis is an analysis of the transitions and political and religious implications of court leisure and the concept of play in the courts of Mary, Queen of Scots. I'm always delighted to hear about historic games and was thrilled to hear you talk about dice. In the course of my research, I was surprised to learn that it was a common practice in medieval Western Europe to play chess with dice, which forced the game to move along at a faster pace and eliminated the need for strategy, because the dice served to choose which pieces moved along the board. In addition, one of my favorite things about games is the evolution of the pieces and boards as they made their way across the globe. As chess moved from India to Western Europe, the original Indian pieces of a chariot and an elephant became the rook and bishop that we have on modern boards. If you'd like a fabulous book about the evolution of chess, I'd recommend H.J.R. Murray's A History of Chess, and much more manageably in terms of page numbers, Marilyn Yalom's Birth of the Chess Queen. It's one of my favorites. I've attached an image of a drawing I have in my office, uh, and that is a, a picture of some games. It's very lovely. My apologies for the poor image quality. Uh, mine is off being framed, so a screenshot of it will have to suffice. Best wishes, Rachel. Thank you so much, Rachel, for that tidbit about games. Uh, and for enjoying the unearth episodes. I enjoy putting those together. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We are also all over social media at Missed in History. And you can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you will find show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have ever worked on together, uh, as well as a searchable archive of every episode ever. And you can find and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.